Welcome to Jane Unchained, featuring best-selling author, TV journalist, and JaneUnchained.com founder, Jane Velez Mitchell. In the next few minutes, you'll hear a secret solution to the problems that plague our world. If you want to revolutionize your life, get truly joyful, and jump to the next phase of human evolution, all it takes is one simple choice. Now, here's your host, Jane Velez Mitchell. Oh my gosh, I am so thrilled and delighted and honored to have an incredible, incredible uh, guest today. Wow. Uh, Cheryl Leahy, the new head of Animal Outlook, which is an organization I'm sure that you guys know about. You should have heard about it. They make headlines all the time in the media. So I want to introduce Cheryl right now. Please give us an update on what your incredible organization is doing, some headlines, and then we'll dive into the details. Thank you so much for having me, Jane. I'm so happy to be here. I, um, yeah, we have a ton of things going on. For those who are not familiar with us, we focus entirely on factory farming issues. Really, at the end of the day, we're trying to mainstream vegan eating and ultimately vegan values. We want people to understand the realities of what is going on in factory farms and slaughterhouses and we want people to know what they can do about it. We want people to feel empowered. We want them to feel like their lives are made better by helping the animals. And that's something that we do, you know, like I said, there's always tons of things going on, but we have four programs. We have our undercover investigations. We have our legal advocacy. We have our corporate work that's on the supply side, trying to get companies to move away from animals and into vegan and plant products. And we have our mainstreaming vegan values side of things, which is basically trying to get uh, people to understand um, vegan eating and uh, take it up for themselves. So some of the most exciting things, go ahead. The hardest part of interviewing you is figuring what to talk about because you are doing so many things on so many fronts. But the one thing I do want to say is that my dear friend, Erica Meyer, who led this organization for many years, is moving on to a new chapter. She really revolutionized the animal rights movement. What she did by turning Animal Outlook, which used to be Compassion Over Killing, from a very small, tiny organization to an organization that makes headlines around the world is extraordinary. So I think we want to give it up for Erica Meyer uh, and... um, I tell her she always has a crash pad in L.A. when she comes out to L.A. Um, So this is, though, turning of a new chapter, and you're now moving forward. You are an attorney. Tell us a little bit about yourself and how your skills are going to dovetail with um, the um, ever-refining mission of Animal Outlook going forward. Well, yeah, I mean, I'll just say about Erica, too, that I've been here for almost 15 years. So Erica, you know, as much as she's done for the movement, I also have my personal sort of growth to thank her for um, in this this organization and in this movement. And I think being able to come into this organization as an attorney and thinking of things from the point of view of how can we use the law to maximize the impact against the institutional harms uh, to animals, and then expand that to say, how can we use these other tools? What is going on in the world that people are really going to engage with? And how do we get that word out to everyone? Um, so our, our programs are not fundamentally changing in the sense that we're still doing our four programs. What we're doing is that next phase, that 2.0 phase of doing it strategically, finding out how now that vegan is mainstream, people understand it. I think about that time 15 years ago you know, when I first started, it was so radical and so outside the box to be thinking about getting inside factory farms and slaughterhouses, not eating animals. And now it's, you know, everybody wants to do it. Everybody really understands that they're doing better um, if they are not eating animals. So we're trying to find a way to make that have staying power. And we're trying to find a way to really accelerate that and really make people feel like they understand this and they bring it into their identities. Now, let me ask you a question, and I was researching, but I ran out of time. What is the connection with the D.C. Veg Fest? Because I know you were very involved in that. I don't know if yes, you actually that was ours. Yes, oh, wow. Yes. Well, that's yes. in, non- in non-pandemic years, <laughs> we run the D.C. Veg Fest, 
which I think, so I'll tell you one thing that really is a, is a major sort of priority of mine is to use social science principles and proven techniques that are, you know, in other movements that other people have used and really apply them to help move our cause forward. And one of the things that we are really told from the scientific research on this is that when people feel uncertain about something or they're new to it or they don't really understand it, they really, really need community. They really need a sense of other people are around. They're going to help them. They're going to feel like they're part of something bigger. They want that celebration. They want that sense of community. DC VegFest is an incredible thing to be able to do that. And I think being able to see, you know, with your own eyes, as far as you can see thousands of people, you know, really having a good time, really bringing their particular, you know, literal flavor and sort of a brand to this movement, you really do feel like you're part of something that's big and that's exciting and that's growing. And I think I would say the same thing about Veg Week, which is a campaign that we just finished. And that's something we do every year, which is, is very simple um, in, it, in its ask, which is saying everybody, I don't care if you're vegan already, vegetarian, you are sort of interested in this, you're a hardcore meat eater, you can make a pledge to stop eating animals for one week out of the year. Now, of course, we hope that people stay and oftentimes they do. Our statistics on that are pretty interesting, but we align it with Earth Week and we bring in celebrities, athletes. You know, we've got in the past, we've gotten all these city proclamations and stuff. And it's the same idea. It's this idea that, you know, we want to help people who might be interested in this, but are not really ready to say, yes, I'm an expert at this yet. They want that sense of community, that sense of help, that sense of celebration. And that is really going to be a major factor in moving this movement more into the mainstream. Well, uh, I have to tell you, and if you ever see me looking down, it's because I'm sharing out, share out this video, because we need to do an end run around the mainstream media news block out. Now, some of Animal Outlook's campaigns have broken through, broken through that barrier. Um, one of the other ways, though, is to share out conversations like this so that people see them and can understand what's going on behind the scenes. Now, you recently did an undercover investigation that was one of the most shocking and gut-wrenching undercover investigations I've ever seen. It actually was something where I cried when I was watching the video. I thought, how can human beings be so cruel? It was at a dairy farm and we invite the owners uh, and any dairy representatives on anytime. But the video is the video. Your incredible undercover investigator, Aaron Wing went there, not once, but repeatedly, you can tell us over how long. And some of the video that she came out with, I mean, the hip clamps that yeah. take a downed cow and hold them up by their bones and dangle them over the air like they are just things to be moved. And of course, uh, as per usual, the industry says, oh, that was taken out of context, that was staged. How do you stage taking a cow who can't walk and picking it up with a giant uh, piece of machinery and something called a hip clamp, clamp to her hip bones and dangling. No, sorry, there's no, um, there's no staging of that. Yeah. Steven Spielberg would not be able to stage that. Your undercover investigation broke through. It did hit the mainstream media. The usual, you know, round up the usual suspects conversation happened without looking at the fact that um, this is the kind of, horror happening all over the world globally. Uh, the New York Times did a story uh, that seemed to, in my opinion, whitewash or greenwash or whatever you want to call it, uh, by basically going and finding a nice farmer somewhere who, who pets his cows and saying, look, they're not all that way. When in truth, 99.999% of factory farming of animals is cruel. Give us your thoughts on the significance of this um, investigation, the New York Times coverage. And I will say this, the New York Times did link to your video. So mm -hmm. anybody who was curious could lick on, click on the link and decide for themselves. 
because you would truly have to be deaf, dumb, and blind to look at the video of this, of this horror and say, oh, nothing to see here. Take it away, Cheryl. It, absolutely. And Jen, you're hitting it right on the head when you're saying it is about that video, right? You can't argue with the video. And I think that's what's so important about doing these undercover investigations, because this is not unexpected. This is a feature, not a bug, of how these industries communicate with the public. They think that we're just here to be manipulated into buying more animal products, right? All of us. It doesn't matter how kind of educated and, and you know, engaged we are on these topics. All of us grew up in a world where most of the messages that we heard were from companies that their job was to sell us animal products. These undercover investigations do this really unusual, unique thing, and they break that open. They break that unanimity and they give us the reality, the unfiltered reality of what is happening in these factory farms and slaughterhouses. And the reality is that cruelty is the standard. So that investigation, that California investigation, you know, every time I, I watch an investigation, I have these sort of two, you know, now it's been however many countless hours, you know, I have these sort of two programs running in my head. One is I know what I'm going to see because I know that everywhere we go, there's going to be something that's horrifying and probably more than one thing, a number of things, right? Just the nature of dairy is cruel. There's, you know, 90 something plus of the dairy industry is burning the horns off of baby calves. You know, they're taking the babies from their moms. That's just dairy. That is what dairy is. Now, at the same time, I can watch these videos and then say, wow, this is something I've never seen before. And in that California investigation, something that really struck me was that they didn't have any, any plan for euthanizing or killing sick or injured animals. They just kind of put them all in one place and waited for them to die. That's something I've never seen before. And that hip clamp, unfortunately, is something we've seen before which is really fascinating to me. And of course, it's, it's just a horrifying thing. You think about that metal on bone and you're talking about an animal that's down, is too sick or weak to stand already. And you're putting that device on them. Now in the California case, it's the first time we've seen them actually dangling over you know, a cement floor. But that same investigator, Aaron Wing, did an investigation in Pennsylvania of a dairy that... I would say the same thing. There were some really egregious, horrible things that I'd never seen before. <laughs> there were some egregious things that I had seen before. And then there were the, the sort of inherently cruel standard practices in the industry. But one of the things they were doing in that case was using that hip clamp to drag and hoist these animals. And in that case, they also were doing this thing where they were rolling cows over on their backs and actually immobilizing them with, with like a strap against a tractor to address what they thought was an issue that they didn't have to call on the vet to do. So they, the manager just thought he should handle it himself. Uh, these are the kinds of things that, that we're running into. We've got a caller. Uh, Sarah, your question or thought? Oh, great. Oh, gosh. Hey, is it, is, I really love Erica Meyer. She's amazing. But I wanted to find out what's the next step for getting rid of dairy in the mainstream, is there a way that we can talk to people and ask them not to have that advertiser? So you know how like Super Bowl PETA is always putting in an ad, but that gets rejected. What if we did a petition to have all of the mainstream media reject the commercials for dairy or at least something? What do you think about that? That is an excellent question, and it's very timely. This is, this is actually, I think we're running up into National Dairy Month next month. We've actually started to focus our stuff on dairy so far. But I think we are in a cultural moment with dairy where we really can get somewhere with all of these plant milks actually taking up a significant portion of the market. We are able to have a platform to say, look, what the dairy industry is telling you is a lie. Now, unfortunately, it's more challenging than just saying, yeah, let's get them to stop advertising. Let's get them to take all of this down. There was a really interesting famous case years ago about the happy cows in California. Jane, I'm sure you remember this. Oh, yes. Um, and unfortunately, the legal efforts to stop that uh, were thwarted by the fact that it was the state of California that was the speaker in that case. So governors, uh, governments can lie, essentially. Yes. 
If it was a private corporation saying happy cows come from California, you could sue them and say this is false advertising. But when it's the government pushing it and a lot of people aren't aware that these campaigns like Got Milk, um, can you explain that, how the government is behind these campaigns like the incredible edible egg, Got Milk? Yeah, what you're talking about are actually advertising help, essentially, that the government is giving. It's part of a much bigger, um, what we would probably roughly call subsidy structure. So the vast majority of the money that's going to help, let's say, the general food industry. And of course, I, I philosophically object to the idea of animals being food, but let's say, you know, for the, for the purpose of, of this structure, the vast majority of those subsidy dollars are going toward meat, milk, and eggs. They're not going toward fruits and vegetables. They're not going toward the kind of grains people eat. So the government is helping with advertising. They're helping with things in the dairy industry in particular. There's a ton of this. They're helping with things like price floors and insurance. So what we're doing, it's very important for us to stop eating animal products. But the impact of that is distorted by the fact that the government is going to come in and bail them out. And help them out. And, you know, they're doing things like giving the um, amounts of dairy and other uh, animal products to the National School Lunch Program. They're buying them up for those reasons. So I'll tell you something really interesting about the dairy industry. Um, a case that we did years ago was actually an antitrust case. We developed the, the initial case research and we pulled it together and, and brought the idea to a law firm. And essentially, the, the dairy industry was killing massive numbers of young cows to take that milk out that they would otherwise be producing out of the supply so that it would inflate prices. And they were actually publishing all this data on their own publicly, on their own site, showing how much money they made, which was over nine and a half billion dollars. This was 70% of the dairy industry um, that was involved in this and essentially they felt like they could do this. They could manipulate supply to inflate price. And the fact that it was a massive cow killing campaign, it was over half a million cows. Oh my God. Incidental thing. Like they were actually, you know, requiring farmers to just kill their entire herds in order to get this payout. And um, ultimately that case resulted in a settlement that meant everybody who had purchased dairy for a number of years before that got some money. So it was a $52 million settlement in total to all, you know, split between all dairy consumers in the U.S. But I thought even bigger than that monetary settlement was the opportunity to tell that story. Because I think many, many, many people came to me after that and said, I don't get it. Like, they kill the cows. And they didn't understand that, um, you know, dairy cows go to slaughter anyway. Right. Like it's just a couple of years later, they go to slaughter. This is these are the things that are hard because we're all told these really sweet stories about, you know, dairy. It's very old McDonald's farm. And then we get this opportunity to say, no, this is what they're really doing, guys. You know, regardless of whether it's part of a price fixing scheme or not, those cows are going to slaughter when they're, you know, kind of broken down and they're not profitable anymore. And these slaughterhouses they're going to are really, really horrific. And that allowed us to, you know, to really highlight that. And a lot of media covered that, which was so interesting because, you know, it's like, yeah, you can get your little bit of money from the settlement. But also, did you know that the dairy industry does stuff like this? Now, let's talk about some of your positive campaigns. Erin uh, Wing is my hero. Uh, she, the, there is no, there's no way to describe the courage it takes to go undercover with a camera, not once, but how long was she going undercover at one particular farm that we... Yeah, she would do it for a few months at a time and she went to four different places. Imagine, imagine having to live that day in and day out. And so they're doing the really, really, really hard work. The undercover investigators are the true heroes of our movement because it is... I, I, I don't have it in me. I'll be, I'll be yeah. honest. I, 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 it, the, the level of... Uh, courage and determination and self-control it takes to do that is beyond my comprehension. So kudos and bravo for that work. And I know you have other undercover investigators too, um, who are also heroes. Uh, but let's talk about the positive side. Now, I was very honored at Jane Unchained News, we're a 501c3, to be part of your Starbucks campaign, which basically to encourage Starbucks to offer more vegan options. Here's a company that purports to be progressive and um, it, 
has a sort of an, a branding and an image of like, we're the future. And yet they were laggards when it came to offering uh, vegan alternatives, substantive. I'm not talking about yeah. nuts, uh, a little package of nuts. I'm talking about substantive meals. To my eyes, they seem to be laggards. And I will tell you that I was in uh, Switzerland, in Zurich, and I, I was at a hotel. I walked across the street, and um, there was a Starbucks, and there were fluffles that were absolutely delicious. I went live. Uh, this woman and I kind of grappled a little bit over the last fluffle because I wanted to document it, and she wanted it. And then I, it was very funny. And I asked the guy, I said, these sell? He goes, oh, they sell out immediately. These are vegan fluffles. They were literally um, delicious. I did get the one and I went live and I explained the whole story. And now, so to me, that said, a Starbucks knows how to make delicious vegan food that people want. Not some weird thing that then they could say, well, it didn't sell. Like they're, I think they put out a cookie that I had tried that wasn't too delicious that they said there's, there's a vegan cookie. I mean, come on, people. We know Uncle Eddie's vegan cookies has been around for years. I can't even buy them. I'll eat the whole bag on the way home. Uh, we know how to make delicious vegan. Even I can make delicious vegan cookies. Um, but the fact is that Flawful told me, my gosh, we could have this in the United States. People yeah. are fighting over them here in Zurich, Switzerland. So bring us up to date because uh, I was so thrilled to be part of that campaign and tell us about it and what it has accomplished. Yeah, that's fantastic. But I'll just say absolutely thank you so much, just full stop, because I think this, I mean, I think to put into context Starbucks, I mean, Starbucks is covering the planet, right? The idea that now we're at the point, there were some sort of fits and starts and like you say, the cookie, but we're at the point now where U.S. Starbucks have this full chickpea bites meal. And let me tell you something. I went to my local Starbucks on Friday. Guess what I saw there? I saw a brand new vegan option, which is a uh, yogurt parfait. And I said to the woman, and it says vegan right on the top. I'm sorry, it's a, it's a oatmeal parfait. And it has like a cream that's like a coconut yogurt style cream. And I said to the barista, uh, what is this? Is this new? And she said, yeah, that's part of our vegan rollout. So she didn't know if we're going to be doing any more, they're going to be doing any more vegan items on their rollout. But what's so great is this chickpea bites, which was such a huge milestone and still really kind of sits in this moment of, wow, Starbucks. Can you imagine 10 years ago if we would have thought that this would have been happening? And that might have just been the first domino in the chain and is more vegan options. Um, actually showing up. And right on the label just says vegan, which is so fun. Well, and by the way, yes, I always applaud companies when they do the right thing. So good job, Starbucks, for bringing yes. in a vegan option. I would still like to see those vegan falafels that I saw in Zurich here in the United States. It was absolutely delicious. So you know how to do it. I um, will tell you this. I've had this for about three years. Okay. This is a reusable Starbucks cup and it's actually been, um, it faded out. But what I write is more vegan options. This was part of our campaign and you write it on your cup and then take a photo of it and put it on social media. Um, and this is a fabulous way to get, I'm going to take a picture of it and put it on social media. So the campaign continues because, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, I have honestly not gone to a Starbucks in a long time. Again, this cup is about two years old and I urge everybody get one of these. If, if you, this makes you happy, get one and use it for two years. Don't, don't use a, a new cup every time you go to Starbucks. But, um, they're still charging more for non uh, for non-dairy options, for dairy-free options. Is that correct? And what can we do about that? Because I think that's a big stumbling block for people who might otherwise go, yeah, give me the soy milk, give me the oat milk. Uh, what can we do about that? It's just not right. I really don't. I really don't know. I don't know uh, the status of that. I do think what's interesting about Starbucks is now they have multiple plant milks, and I've really been noticing their recent marketing is very, very um, focused on 
using those plant milks. Like I see their soy milk products being on all their posters. I see their almond milk and their oat milk on all their posters and stuff. So I think they really are kind of doubling down on the vegan side of things. And I'll tell you with this oatmeal uh, parfait, I went back there twice this weekend. I cleaned them out and I didn't even get to try it because my kids wanted it so much. You know, they were like, (laughs) I'm going to go try that. I'm going to try it, support it. We've got another caller, Lindsay, your question or thought for Cheryl Leahy. Yes, I sort of have a comment and a question. Um, That whole thing with the Starbucks, I thought that was great. I just tuned in at that point. Um, I was going to a Starbucks about a year and a half ago, and I was really upset because they were charging, you know, extra for milk and all that. But anyway, for soy milk. But there were no vegan options. So I go in there every day because I was working there, not every day, but twice and three times a week when I worked, and say, do you have any vegan options? As loud as I could. And I'm so happy to see things changing, and I see them changing in other um, restaurants, for example, there's an Italian restaurant here in Santa Monica we go to, and they really have a huge vegan menu. I was jumping up and down yesterday reading the vegan menu for Mother's Day. But my question is, how can we push this even further? I mean, it's happening, but it's only, you know, when I talk to people and I'm on another channel called Rizzle, uh, it's an app, actually. But when I talk to people, they go, oh, yeah, you have a Trader Joe's, you have this, you have that in California. But is this happening throughout the U.S. or is it just happening here? And how do we push this further? Great. Great question. Thank you for calling. Um, Yeah, take it away, Cheryl. Yeah, that is is a really good question. And that's something that we think about here all the time in terms of how we choose the targets for our corporate work. And I think Starbucks is a great example of a, a campaign that is about where people are, right? Like we're not going to, it's not an issue of our people, do people care about animals? If you look at survey data and you talk to people, they actually do care about animals more than you think. And in, in a way that is really encouraging. The problem is they don't feel like they can walk out their door and get vegan options. So Starbucks is a really great example. Dunkin' Donuts is one that we are working on really heavily right now. And I think we've, we've been working on this for a while. Actually, it started with an investigation we did of one of their egg suppliers. And there was a lot of kind of, you know, progress here, progress there. There's almond milk. There's um, the Beyond Sausage sandwich, which you can veganize, but doesn't come vegan. And then the um, coconut milk. And now they're testing 41 vegan options. Wow. In the Netherlands, which is unbelievable. So close. Gosh, that's huge. Yes, I feel like I can taste it. I actually just had a Mother's Day text with my friend. She's like, I found some vegan donuts. And I'm like, if with any luck, we're going to be swimming in vegan donuts here. So this is the the answer to your question is we've got to talk to these companies. We've got to pick the right companies that have the, the, the power, frankly, to bring vegan to everyone and ask them exactly that. Ask them what Jane is saying, more vegan options. So Duncan has already been testing it. They're testing it on these European markets. They've told us they're working on vegan options here in the U.S. All we've got to do is have to make that connection and say, look, you got to bring these vegan options to the U.S. markets. And, you know, Duncan's really close to my heart, too, because I remember my grandpa coming over on Sunday mornings and bringing Duncan. And that, to me, like being able to really get in there into where people are all across the country and get them to see very tangibly they can eat vegan, that's what is in Duncan's hands. They have that power. So we can yeah. We want that. Normalizing veganism to make veganism the norm, uh, to make plant-based the norm. We've got another caller. Paige, your question or thought. Paige. Hello. Uh, good morning. Yes, thank you. I, I wanted to circle back. I know we've been talking about a lot of different things today, and I wanted to bring forth the live market conversation, um, given that there's so many live markets across the United States and around the world. Um, what are the plants eating pandemics, excuse me, eating animals causes pandemics? What are your thoughts on moving forward with closing these wet markets? Excellent question, Paige. Uh, yeah, Cheryl. Yeah, that really is an excellent question. Um, so as you said, they're all over the world. I think what was so interesting about this is a year ago, obviously all of our were turned upside down. The idea of live markets was in the news all over the place. We heard about these live markets in Wuhan, China, where people thought this 
I just thought that was the vector for the jump between species, right? But people didn't know, I think, and still in a large part don't know that they're all over the world. So we actually did an investigation. We have footage from Los Angeles live markets that we released in a video. And we took that as an opportunity to educate people more broadly about how infectious diseases happen. So I actually have a, a statistic here. Uh, three out of four new, new or emerging infectious diseases in people come from animals. This is from a CDC report. The UN report called the health of farm animals the weakest link in the global health chain. So these are not, this is not a controversial issue. Scientists understand what's going on. So it's about essentially packing animals very tightly, not just in live markets, but in factory farms. So, you know, you think about what might be the next pandemic. Scientists understand what might cause the next pandemic. And what's so interesting about this, actually, <laughs> is that people don't want to hear it. And part of that is the media's fault. I mean, of course, there were tons of really complicated stories to cover over the last year. But I think really getting people to understand that when you pack animals into huge sheds by the tens of thousands, you are breeding the next potential pandemic. And I want to say the World Health Organization recently called for an end to wild animals in wet markets, which is... Certainly not, we want all animals out of wet markets, but it's a huge step in the right direction. And there was very little coverage of that. It, it just yeah. went by, it wasn't the headline that it should be because it really connects the dots with why we have a pandemic and the wet markets. They didn't just decide to do that because it's Tuesday or Monday. They did it because obviously the global pandemic uh, is connected to wet markets, just like SARS was connected to a wet market. So, well, I mean, you know what? It's it, the next one is likely to be a pig or bird source, right? I mean, we're talking about they've had them. They've, had them. they've cropped up recently. Yeah. So, uh, we're we're playing with fire, and the fact that the media refuses to cover this because they're advertiser based and controlled by the meat, dairy, and pharmaceutical industry is extremely disturbing. Which is why you need to share this video out. We need to get the word out to everyone, and we have to do end runs because the media just is. Listen, there was an eating animals causes pandemics demonstration just the other day in sixty cities. Basically, zero coverage in mainstream media. And some of the protesters actually went in Canada and the United States to the doors of the news media and they still wouldn't cover it. We've got another yeah. caller on hold, Elizabeth. Well, hey, let, me, let me actually give people a little something they can do on the pandemic issue before I move on. So there's actually a bill in the LA City Council about this. And um, so for everybody who is listening, who is a fellow Angelino, you can call or email member John Lee and ask him to schedule the bill for a hearing. It has been stalled, it is in his hands. This is how you get in touch with him. Councilmember.lee, L-E-E, -E, at lacity.org, or you can call him at City Hall, 213-473-7012. So this is John Lee, ask him to schedule the bill for a hearing. Now, just doing this could get this bill moving and could ban live markets in Los Angeles, which could have a real impact on animals. You know, and of course, the human health implications. I would like to volunteer Jane Unchained News for a campaign on that. Great. Okay, because we've worked together before. We could do a campaign and uh, create memes and get everybody to call. And, uh, we, you know, would love to join your campaign. Elizabeth, your question or thought? Hi, Jane. Thanks for having me here. And Cheryl, thank you for all that you do. I was running between meetings, so I'm a little late. I hope you haven't already discussed this. You're talking about how the media isn't covering this, and yet we're seeing an enormous growth in the flexitarian market, flexitarians being people who are reducing their meat intake. And, you know, they're starting to read labels. They're starting to care about where their food comes. They're starting to get the message. I mean, they just did go through a year-long pandemic. Regardless of what the media is willing or not willing to share, I'm, I'm, are you seeing on your end, Cheryl, that more and more people care about animal welfare and that more and more people are making the connection to their food source? Wow, absolutely. what a great Yes, absolutely. The, the interest in these issues is skyrocketing, and it's especially among younger people. Some of the statistics, every statistic, I feel like I have, I have to update my last one because it's more mind-blowing about, you know, the majority of millennials is eating more plant-based and they're intending to eat more plant-based for example. And I think, you know, honestly, the, the thing that really, frankly, blows my mind is that there are people who identify as vegan, 
who are still not fully vegan. And that sometimes people say, oh, well, that just means there's not as many vegans. No, you know what that means? It means that people want to show that they support these issues, even if they themselves haven't fully, you know, figured it out and they haven't created that habit yet. So they're willing to kind of sit with that discomfort, but they're able to, but they want to show their solidarity with this. And they want to identify that way. And they want to say, look, I'm on the path to be do, to doing this, which I think is a huge growth moment for this movement. And it's a huge opportunity for all of us who care about animals to really help empower people in practical ways <clears throat> and in education to, um, you know, really be part of this community and kind of, you know, invite people in to eat more vegan. Uh, I agree with you. Now, on various platforms, people will ask about people's eating uh, habits. You can check off like, I'll eat anything, uh, vegan, mostly plant-based. And I see that so many people check off mostly plant-based. So it's a process, not an event. I wish I had been born vegan, but I wasn't. And uh, uh, it was a process. And so people are going through that process. So where are we now as we um, start, hopefully, at some point, entering a post-pandemic world. I know the world's grappling with it still. And again, it's a zoonotic illness that jumped from animals to humans. And uh, it, it's a, it's a wake-up call for everybody, even though the media is trying to keep the see no evil, hear no evil uh, blinders on. It is a wake-up call for everybody. I think people are connecting the dots if not consciously, subconsciously. Mm-hmm. Um, where do we go from here? Are we in the tipping point? Are we close to the tipping point to, for plant-based uh, becoming essentially the mainstream? I mean, what we have to do is, with, of course, we haven't even talked about uh, animal agriculture's impact on climate change. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to hit, we have to get to a point where plant-based is the default mm-hmm. and is the outlier. outlier. And before it's gone. A hundred percent. I mean, I think to me, you know, we are in a, we are in an unprecedented opportunity moment for being able to functionally dismantle factory farming. This is a real question for humanity, not for any individual person here, regardless of, you know, how, how any individual does its, you know, does our education and makes our choices and stuff. Of course, I want people to, you know, stop eating animals and do it at a large scale, but we're at the level where, you know, we know how to stop the next pandemic. We know that, you know, aquaculture is slated to have so many animals that we can't even count them. <laughs> you know, we don't even count the animals in the fish industry. I mean, that should, should really kind of sort of be this, this perspective shifting thing to understand that we are in a moment where we have to come together and dismantle the legal structures and the social norm structures that are in place that allow these industries to functionally just manipulate people, right? I mean, talking the question about the false advertising was so interesting because to me, the fact that they're doing this, these, these things, these happy cow style campaigns, means that these companies understand that people care about these issues and they're just gonna tell them what they wanna hear, right? So instead of addressing the issue, and that's the same thing with ag gag, for example, going after the investigators for revealing the truth, you know, instead of, of fixing the problem, because you can't fix the problem because inherent in the system is an indication that we are in this moment where, you know, society gets it. We are in that kind of mainstream, it's percolated into mainstream thinking. And you could come to an anti-factory farming point of view for environmental reasons, as you mentioned, for human health reasons, for human rights reasons, um, you know, and or for animal reasons. So I think altogether, this really becomes this overarching massive social justice issue. And it's a question of entering, you know, at, at the points that are going to be, you know, levers for really dismantling these systemic harms. Now, uh, dairy is the biggest success story in the meat and dairy alternative space. Um, it is skyrocketing. People are adopting plant-based milks at a level that is, is pretty extraordinary. And you yeah. have like the Oatleys of the world. There's talk of a lot of these companies going public. Um, yet there's pushback. Uh, there's pushback, not only in the United States and Europe and elsewhere, trying to say you can't describe 
uh, a dairy alternative as a butter or milk uh, because yeah. it's going to confuse people. <laughs> yeah. What a, what a lame excuse that is. Um, where do we stand with that? Uh, because clearly it's extremely threatening to um, the powers that be. And I have to point out that you have um, Tom Vilsack, who is the head of the USDA, who is a former dairy trade group yeah. leader running the USDA. So that's a problem there. How do we deal with uh, the pushback from not only industry, but from government? The, yeah, the fight around social movements of any kind, and especially this one, is always going to include a fight around language. Whoever can control language can control reality. And in this case, the advertising budgets of just even one of these companies just dwarfs the entire budget of the entire animal protection movement. We have a lawsuit currently going, um, actually two different false advertising lawsuits going. Um, one is based on an aquaculture facility that we investigated for misleading advertising around things like sustainability. Um, and th these are things that, you know, anyone who's paying attention has to keep an, a hand in and really understand what they're reading and what it means or frankly, what it doesn't mean. And I think what we need to get people to understand is cruelty is a standard, right? These are not things that you can just clean up around the edges and then, you know, paste an image and say, oh, well, you know, th this is fine, <laughs> right? This is a nice little animal wandering around in a field. Or, oh, people will get confused if we say butter when this is cashew butter or whatever. Like, this is a bigger question of who gets to to own language and to tell the story. And to me, at the end of the day, this all boils down to the raw data behind it, which is the investigation videos. I know people have a hard time watching them. I know that they're, you know, really, really violent and difficult, but I think of it as a right. There's a lot of litigation and, you know, uh, arguments within the law about First Amendment rights and investigations, and that's been really nicely successful. But I think we should all think about it as exercising our rights. Go to our website, look at the videos, share the videos, educate yourselves, because this is something that the industry does not want us to do. They can't get out there lying to us if we understand what the actual truth is. So we want to fight that and we need to get people to really be empowered with those tools. Now, uh, in terms of meat alternatives, you had some breakthrough moments in 2019, Beyond Meat became the most successful initial public offering since the 2008 financial crisis. Now you have meat companies, um, Tyson and others developing JBS, their own vegan lines. What does that tell you? Uh, and what's Animal Outlook's take on all that? Yeah, you know, Tyson is such an interesting story because they've been investigated a number of times, including twice by us, and it was pretty bad. <laughs> um, one of our major asks to them was to, you know, move away, like have a percentage of their of their offerings be vegan. And they they opened up with a couple of non-vegan versions. They did roll out this blended idea and then this veg this veg thing that was vegetarian but not vegan. And then just recently, just last week, they come out with this new line of products that is vegan. And that was, you know, we had really pushed them and said, no, no, this is not good enough. This, you cannot just, you know, kind of halfway get there. Uh, and this is, the, this is the result. Now they have actual vegan products. It really is indicating from a massive, massive meat company and not just meat company, but player in the global food industry that they are seeing that vegan is something that they need to, you know, get get on top of, or they will be left behind. That is incredible. Vegan really is the gold standard. Now, Bill Gates, who is no vegan activist, going to protests, uh, either one of or the richest man depends. Those those change up and down, but um, one of the richest men in the world certainly. He recently said we're all going to have to switch to synthetic meat, and he said the developed world, the rich nations. Uh, again, not the perfect message I would send, but a huge step in the right direction. And it's just very simple math. He, he said, you know, 9 billion people can't be eating uh, basically like kings who developed gout. 
um, one of the false narratives that we're subjected to is this is tradition. Actually, our great grandparents ate mostly vegetables and meat was, if, if they ate it, uh, you know, a little garnish or a treat uh, throughout history. They, uh, the, the great uh, movie, The Game Changers, documented that the, uh, the gladiators mostly plant-based. Uh, cavemen, when they go and they check between their teeth because they didn't have dental flaws, are, are plant-based. Um, so all these myths that we've been created about our heritage being meat consumption um, is being challenged. But even if it were, when you have 9 billion humans on the planet, it's clearly unsustainable. You don't have to be a math genius to figure that out. And nonetheless, of course, the mainstream media ridiculed Bill Gates uh, when he suggested we're going to have to switch to, in his nerdy term, synthetic meat, but basically saying we have to go plant-based. It's yeah. not a sustainable model. Are the so-called best and the brightest, which I always point out was a sarcastic title, the best and the brightest brought us a Vietnam War. Um, are they starting to do this very simple math that, you know, teenagers can do, but somehow these, these, these um, intellectuals can't seem to wrap their brain around. Right now, we're 7.9 billion humans eating 80 billion land animals every year who are um, using up about half of all ice-free land for either cattle grazing or to grow crops to feed farm animals. It's a leading cause of uh, climate change, habitat destruction, wildlife extinction, human world hunger, preventable human disease, and pandemics. I can't even, it doesn't, it blows my mind that they are systematically not connecting the dots. Even when slaughterhouse workers were dying in droves from COVID, they were calling them meat packing plants on television because they can't yeah. use the word slaughter. Yeah, you know, I think there's there's two things going on here. I think one is that some of the mainstream media people they're talking about are much more conservative on this issue than what is really going on. Because, um, you know, we, we see this Manhattan restaurant last week, the, one of the best restaurants in the world, three Michelin stars going vegan, right? You see here in Los Angeles, when we're not in pandemic times, regular, like thousands of people coming out, you know, for vegan events. People are getting it. I think the people who are sort of the gatekeepers of these narratives have been slower. And, th and that are, to me, those are um, mainstream politician politicians and mainstream media. And I think that really is, um, you know, it's incumbent upon, we can't ignore those people. It's incumbent upon us to really get them to see that. And I, I, certainly there are people within both of those of those spheres that really do get it. It's just now a question of getting this to be more, um, you know, the dominant narrative. I think years ago when we would go for an investigation release, you know, we would get really dismissed in, in, a, in a news story. I don't think that's happening as much now. Now the reporters do want to really dig into what is the context. They're not saying, oh, this is just one bad apple because it's obviously not a bad apple. We've done dozens of these investigations. You know, we, and we see the same kinds of things over and over and over again. And that's something that cannot be ignored. So this is a question of making sure that we're getting to the right people, telling them the right stories, giving them the right facts, and moving that, that narrative and mainstream politics and mainstream media to be closer to what people's values and understanding of the situation actually are. So uh, you're saying you see progress in the media. I personally see progress um, in social media. Uh, yes. Younger kids um, are on Instagram and TikTok and they're not sitting down and watching the nightly news. I don't think yes. the nightly news is getting much better on this issue. I do feel that social media is being flooded with it. And part of this tipping point, I think, is where people are getting their information. Uh, cable news had uh, a spike because of very dramatic political developments over the last few years, but um, the the cord cutting trend is accelerating, and so new media is really uh, where that our story is being told, and it's not just Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Rizzle and. Uh, all these different platforms, Clubhouse, 
Uh, yeah. Jane is doing a weekly clubhouse and um, we get a lot of veg curious people on there telling their asking their questions and telling their dilemmas that we try to solve. So um, the shift, it's, it's almost like a parallel course. It's like the shift to plant-based uh, and the shift to new media are kind of happening at the yes. same time, but I don't see any kind of a progress in old media. Um, the, the, the problem that I see is that they have their little uh, feudal uh, organizations within like a news organization. There's the food organ, the, the food organization, right? So mm -hmm. those people who go out and cover food, they don't want to be limited. Oh, you can't tell me that I can't cover this dish. So you'll have in the New York Times something talking about uh, climate change or COVID or, and that, that basically is pointing to animal agriculture is a big problem. Then you scroll down and you'll see a, a chicken recipe. Yeah. I've seen it several times. It's a complete disconnect. Absolutely. Uh, and of course you have the advertisers meet dairy and pharmaceuticals. So we have one minute. What is the next chapter? Give us the final uh, summary if you can. And thank you for, for taking all this time. Well, thank you so much, Jane. So this is a moment culturally, as we've, we've talked about, where we have a real opportunity. We are exposing the truth through the investigations. Please watch these investigations, share them. This is, a, as you say, the social media and the new media, this is a democratization of having voices. There's voices everywhere. Let's use our voices. And this is a time when we are using, you know, a number of litigation avenues and policy avenues to change the law and dismantle the systems that are holding this up, you know, and we're trying to educate people and bring people into this community. Everyone is invited. There is a way for all of us to enter this issue and we can all join together and be part of that. And that includes changing the corporations that includes changing the menus at, you know, your, your family dinners. So come together be part of this and we can actually move this issue into a permanent place in American culture. Cheryl Leahy, the new executive director of Animal Outlook, an incredible, incredible animal welfare, animal rights organization based in Washington, D.C., making so many changes. It's been an honor to have you on. Go to animaloutlook.org to learn more. Um, thank you and we'll talk soon. Thank you for tuning in to Jane Unchained. We hope you'll join Jane Velez Mitchell for the next edition of her program next Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Influencers Channel. Meanwhile, have a peaceful week.